Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. From mosquito-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue to chronic bacterial infections like yours, Southeast Asia is home to a wide range of tropical diseases. For a long time, the arrival in the region of these and other deadly tropical diseases was believed to be connected to the introduction of agriculture. But how long have these diseases really been around for? How are they connected to the region's fluctuating social and environmental conditions? And how have they impacted the human populations of Southeast Asia over time? These are the sort of questions that require very specialised knowledge to answer, and we have just the scholar here on SEAC Stories today. To talk to us about ancient health and disease in Southeast Asia, I'm delighted to introduce the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's new postdoctoral research associate, Dr. Melandri Flock. Mel specialises in paleopathology and bioarchaeology and researches the implications for migration and trade on the presence of infectious and nutritional diseases in past populations in Asia. Mel's work has been funded by grant bodies including National Geographic and the Royal Society of New Zealand. It has involved the analysis of human skeletal remains from Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, Japan, Mongolia and New Zealand. She has also been involved in repatriation efforts focused on returning Maori and Moriori ancestral remains, Iwi and Imi tribes, New Zealand, in her previous role as an assistant research fellow in the Department of Anatomy at the University of Otago. Mel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the new role. Thank you. I'm really excited, actually. (laughs) We can't wait for you to start. So you're a bioarchaeologist with a specialisation in paleoepidemiology. Can you explain these terms to us? What sort of methods do you use and what sort of questions might a bioarchaeologist be interested in exploring? So a bioarchaeologist is someone who studies human skeletons in the past specifically, but I actually have a specialization in ancient diseases and patterns of diseases as well. So how it affects many people, not necessarily just one person. So that's what paleoepidemiology is. The kinds of methods I use are very old school, which is really great for a region like Southeast Asia because it doesn't involve necessarily a high cost or really advanced technology. All I do is pick up a bone and look if there's any evidence of disease on the outside of the bone. And sometimes I'll get some x-rays to look on the inside of the bone, but it means that I can do lots of research throughout Southeast Asia and collaborate with lots of researchers in Southeast Asia. So I really enjoy what I do, actually. Well, I think you're underselling yourself a little bit by saying all I do, because it does take a lot of skills and experience to be able to identify diseases as they present themselves on bones. I'd like to explore that. So a lot of your work has looked at malaria, which is a disease many of our listeners are probably quite familiar with and may have even suffered from themselves. When I think of malaria, I think of blood, not bones. So how does malaria show up in human skeletal remains and why does it lend itself to bioarchaeological approaches? 
I think what fascinates me about malaria is it's not one of those diseases that changes the bone very obviously. There are other diseases like tuberculosis, for example, which can cause really great destruction to your spine that's really obvious when you, you know, see it in the skeleton. Whereas malaria, as you're saying, it's a blood disease. And so what we see is what we call non-specific signs. So some evidence of disease, but we don't necessarily know what that disease is, which can just be anemia. So iron deficiency is caused by malaria, and it can also cause, obviously, really infant death at really high rates. So that's some of the things that we look at. So it's really a challenge to try and pin down what evidence there actually is for malaria in bone, which is what this postdoc's going to look at. Some of my former researchers actually looked at a very unique form of anemia called thalassemia, though. And thalassemia is actually a genetic disease. So it's caused by getting the gene from both your mother and your father. And this disease causes really obvious changes to the bone because it expands your bone marrow. And then your bone marrow has to go somewhere. So it causes your bones to expand. And that's very obvious. Now, in Southeast Asia, thalassemia is really common purely for one reason, and that's because if you have the milder form, you're less likely to die from malaria because malaria can't attach to your blood as well because it's a bloodborne genetic disease. So I found evidence of this in a hunter-gatherer site that's 7,000 years old, showing that likely Southeast Asians have had evidence of malaria for a really long time, but it's only been found in a couple of sites and there's a lot more to investigate in the region. Yeah, so this research that you're talking about now that predated the presence of malaria in the region by many thousands of years was really significant. And as I mentioned, there was this long-held assumption that malaria came into the region along with the introduction of agriculture. But as you're saying, your work has demonstrated that it's actually been present in Vietnam 3,000 years before agriculture was introduced. Were these results something that you set out to determine? Did you have a hypothesis before you started investigating the skeletal remains or, or were the findings a bit unexpected? You know, I had suspected that I might see evidence of that in another site I was looking at, which is an agricultural site. So I had had that assumption that it had been introduced with agriculture because it's an assumption that our actual field is based upon. So some of the really larger paleopathologists from the 1960s came up with this idea that with agriculture, humans started to clear land. And when you clear land, you cause stagnant pools of water. And then that would attract mosquitoes. But it's actually the opposite in Southeast Asia. The kinds of mosquitoes that spread malaria are actually forest mosquitoes. So when you're clearing land, you actually introduce different types of mosquitoes into the area. Logically, it makes sense that I would have been able to possibly find some evidence of this before agriculture, but it's just such a long-held assumption and just shows how sometimes we just really do just assume things that we prove ourselves wrong. So it was really kind of a surprise, honestly, for myself and my team. Well, these were really significant findings that really disrupted the assumptions of an entire discipline. 
Can you tell us about some of the media attention that you got when they were published? Yeah, so we got some really good international media attention at the time. So the Daily Mail, UK Express, for example, were really interested. We had science podcasts that were interested in this research. Twitter blew up. It was really, really interesting to see that it wasn't just scientists that were interested in this story, but the public. And that's what I love the most, I think, about this paper was that I got to actually communicate with people who got to ask me questions that they were interested in because they had found, you know, some sort of media online about this paper. And just remind us where we can find the paper. Uh, So it was actually published in Scientific Reports and it's open access, so it's available for anybody to read. Fantastic. So what you've done here is demonstrate that these pathogens have coexisted with us for millennia and are not necessarily the result of human intervention in the landscape. What are the implications how we manage diseases in the present? I think there's always quite often a biological or an environmental focus. And it may be one of the reasons why malaria today and some of the other diseases I I work on in the tropics are so difficult to eradicate because it isn't just about biology and environment, but how humans respond to the diseases by changing their social structures or changing aspects of their culture. And then how that influences the diseases that then change. Sometimes they evolve to adapt to them. So it's a constantly this back and forth relationship between us and these pathogens. We can really consider them our natural enemies that have been with us for a really long time. And so we have this relationship with them where they influence us, not just our biology, but our society, and then we influence them. And so this relationship, if it's been going on for 7,000 years at least, the fact that malaria acts the way it does with humans today in in Southeast Asia is because of that at least 7,000-year history. And you've also done similar work on yours, I believe, which is not a disease I know a lot about. Can you tell us what your findings were about its arrival in the Pacific? Yeah, so yours is one of those diseases that people really don't know much about. And Prior to a massive eradication attempt by the World Health Organization in the 1950s, it was everywhere in the tropical world. So it doesn't have a high fatality like malaria does, for example. But what it is, is it causes some really severe disfiguring and disabling and painful changes to your skeleton over time if it's not treated. And so it's actually a bacterial disease that's spread through skin contact. It's the same species as its well-known cousin, venereal syphilis. So people tend to know a lot more about syphilis than they know about yours. But it's just spread through normal skin contact. So if you have a sore and someone with the disease touches that sore, for example, you can get the disease. And so what's really horrific about yours is that it's quite often a childhood disease. Because children play with each other in the street, they you know skin their knee and and come in contact with each other. So it it has different what we call different epidemiology. So it has a different disease pattern to syphilis, even though it does very similar things to the bone, which can later on in their adolescence and early adulthood be horrific destruction of your face and your lower body, for example. And so it, it it's quite sad that there isn't a lot of focus and people don't really know about this disease because 
there's still something like 30,000 cases in the Western Pacific today. So it's a major disease in the Pacific. A lot of these diseases sound extremely painful. You're talking about blood marrow expanding in the bone and disfiguration of, of bodies. You know, I think that's what makes us as paleopathologists stand out a little bit. When we make scientific discoveries, we're really acutely aware of the fact that someone had to suffer through this for us to find this evidence. So you're right with the the thalassemia. Yeah, you're talking about bone marrow that tries to push through hard bone. This is extremely painful and it's a common disease in Southeast Asia. So it affects a lot of people today because of the relationship we've had with malaria. So even though eradication efforts have been very successful, thalassemia as a consequence of malaria is still a significant burden in many regions of Southeast Asia. So it is quite conflicting, I think, if you find any evidence, because it's exciting to find that some disease has been around for thousands of years earlier, and that changes our understanding of what it means to be human, really, because it changes our understanding of the relationship we have with our environment. But at the end of the day, that's somebody who was alive and who had family and who lived through this pain. So yeah, it can be both difficult and exciting at the same time. A fine balance, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And sometimes both at once. I want to ask you about the work you've done on different infectious disease patterns between sedentary and mobile populations in Asia. What are these different disease patterns and and the factors that influence the morbidity and mortality of infectious diseases? So I, for the start of my PhD, was really interested in answering this question, what does trade, migration, any form of mobility, what that leads to some sort of interaction between different human groups, how does that actually influence the evidence of infectious diseases we have in the past? And it was a bit of a shock to me to find that that people didn't really focus on that. And much of it is because it's such a challenge. So in order to answer that question, you have to come up with a method on how to do that, really. And for my PhD, it was really long, multiple levels of methods in order to get to that point. But just to keep it short, really what I looked at was the evidence of interaction between sedentary populations, evidence of interaction between mobile populations, and was able to demonstrate that for those who are sedentary, so these are um, people who stay in a single place all year round, the number of people affected by disease went up. But for mobile populations, who typically tend to also be smaller as well, it wasn't the number of diseases, but the number of different types of diseases you could find. And I guess that makes sense because if you're more mobile, as a population in order to survive. So let's say you're pastoralists and you're moving cattle or goat or sheep around the landscape and you're meeting other groups who are also moving their livestock, you are more likely to be exposed to different types of disease. But if you're sedentary, you're less likely to be exposed to different types of diseases, but you're more likely to catch it from someone who lives with you, you know, in the same area. So while you're at SEAC, you plan to develop your research on geographic hotspots in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. What are these and where will you start? So I was thinking about the fact that in modern day disease studies, there's looking at geography of disease and the fact that there are corridors 
of disease introduction in certain regions because of the environment. You might have a riverway or roadways that are access routes of the disease, or you might have a mountain in the middle of people which blocks diseases from being passed between different groups on either side of the mountain. But then you've also got the social aspects as well, so people trading with each other. And so I was interested in trying to see if we can look at these factors in the past. Are we able to map geographically based on what we know about how these what sort of environmental or social factors are the best for for spreading these particular diseases? And if those overlap in a particular geographical area in the past, are these potentially where these diseases were most likely to be introduced into the region in the first place? So I'm going to use statistical tools that are new to me, including what's called GIS, which is essentially a statistical mapping tool to look at the levels of disease in uh, skeletal assemblages in the past and in relation to that society, the environment they lived in, in order to see, for example, where yours and where malaria was introduced and for how long. You've just mentioned statistical approaches. It sounds like you're using a lot of geography here as well. And I think one of the most striking things for me, at least, about your research is its interdisciplinarity. Can you share with us some more about these different disciplinary approaches that you'll be using? Yeah, so the thing about archaeology is that in its nature, it's interdisciplinary. My research on disease is just one piece of the puzzle, but you're not going to get the whole picture unless you have the other pieces. So I'm not a specialist in everything. I collaborate with lots of people, including the archaeologists who excavated the assemblages in the first place because they're experts on the area. There are archaeologists who are experts on the landscape itself who are really important. Geographers, for example, are important. People known as isotope analysts who look at chemical differences in the bone to try and look at variations in diet. And they can also use the chemicals in the bone to try and indicate where a person was born and where they grew up and where they moved in you know, the last 10 years, for example. So all this information is what tells the picture. So I can't really, on my own, give the full story. I'm always working with a very large team, which is what I love about archaeology is that you get to work with people and learn from so many different people who are specialists in completely different aspects and give you sometimes very different perspectives on your own research. We're really looking forward to supporting you to keep building those networks when you join us at SEAC, Mel. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one last question about ethical aspects of working with human remains and in particular how you use your bioarchaeological expertise to promote more ethical approaches to the management and even repatriation of human remains in collections around the world. Look, our field of bioarchaeology is tied to what we now call biological anthropology, but back in the past we called physical anthropology. And in the past, this was a very racial type of science. So the scientists would record or measure skulls, for example, to prove how people, populations were different, that we called races and stuff like that. And we can't hide from that past. We need to confront that past. And as bioarchaeologists today, especially me as a Western researcher working in Southeast Asia, for example, I need to, one, only ever work on skeletal assemblages where those who are descendants 
happy for that kind of research to happen. So where that's not the case, I have no right. I have absolutely no right to do my kind of study. The second is also as a Western researcher to not do what we call parachute research, which is to go into a particular region because I have better access to certain resources or funding, for example, and then just bowl through and and collect data and leave, you know, like I need to actually collaborate and empower researchers who come from the particular countries that I study. I have done some work here in New Zealand, actually, in Aotearoa, on repatriation of Māori and Moriori, what we call kawiwi, which is the Māori term for human skeletal remains, or kawimi in the Moriori language. And see, here in New Zealand, the kawiwi is an incredibly important aspect of life after death. You know, it's not just an object, which is the way that we sometimes perceive it in Western culture. And they have been collected, traded, stolen for centuries in New Zealand. And so they're still held in lots of institutions here. And it's really time that they get returned to the iwi or imi, where they come from, from the area where they come from. And this is obviously an issue all around the world. So with Indigenous Australian remains, with Native American remains, there are still many that are held in institutions. And so my job as a bioarchaeologist to face the past of my field is to return what has been taken and it doesn't heal the wounds. You can't undo the damage that was done, but you can certainly do something to make sure that it never happens again. Really wonderful, Mel. This has been such a great introduction to your research and we really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us and and to seeing how this project develops over the next few years in your time at SEAC. So thanks once again. Thank you so much. It was really lovely having a chat with you. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.